0: Okay, we're in week three of Missing the Meaning, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, we're looking forward to what God has for us today, and I hope that you got the notes uh, out of your bullets in this morning. Week three is Super Supersized Christmas. I'm sure there are a lot of people uh, in the room this morning who remember a time when getting one Christmas, pre- one Christmas present was kind of the norm. And it, it could be that uh, there are some in this room that when you were a kid, if you got an orange or a candy cane, you felt pretty special. Uh, I can still remember some of the gifts I received as a child. And they were special to me uh, because there weren't many of them. As a boy one year, my parents got me my first watch. And it was an owl watch with a, with a leather uh, strap. And, and I treasured that thing. In fact, it it really, it's nostalgic for me to think about it now about 40 years later, because deep in my mind are the things associated with that little watch, the sight of it and the smell that it had. Everything is still right there in my mind. On Christmas Day in 1979, uh, I walked out of my room, and I saw the most beautiful orange roadmaster bicycle that you could ever imagine sitting there beside the Christmas tree, And I don't know how seven-year-olds comprehend this, but somehow, I understood that it had been a sacrifice for my parents to get that bike for me. And I rode the wheels off that thing for many, many years, uh, because my legs reached the pedals on that little bike. Well, they probably still would, but it—I mean, it—we wore it out. But you know, it was about the same year that my mom opened this big box, and inside of it was another box. And then there was another box and another and another until there was a tiny little box about this big. And my mom that year had lost her wedding ring. And I remember that my dad went all out to get her a new wedding ring. And she just sat there by the Christmas tree and cried and cried and cried. And if you know my mom, it doesn't take much to make her cry. So she cried for a long time. Uh, But, you know, the world that we live in now seems to be very different from the world of childhood. Maybe it's just me. Uh, The gifts are numerous for most kids and bigger than they've ever been. And Christmas has become supersized. When that happens, there's a special quality about it that gets lost. Now, I'm not trying to get sappy with you this morning, but doesn't it seem like people are spending more money on more things than ever before? And it doesn't It seem like Christmas has become a commercial enterprise to way too many people, even us. Well, today as we get into the scriptures, we're going to see that missing the meaning of Christmas and missing the meaning of life is nothing new. It's actually been around for a really long time. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. That's our passage that we'll read this morning. <coughs> Luke chapter 12 a guy came to Jesus one day and he said Jesus you need to tell my brother to divide divide the inheritance with me okay so he comes up to Jesus master tell you what you need to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and uh, by the way that's still how people often come to God to get something from him and Jesus saw that the inheritance was more important to the guy than his brother was. And so Jesus gave him a gift, the gift of a dose of reality. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse number 13. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? He said unto him, Take And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, the temporal world, is filled with illusions that cause us to miss the meaning of Christ in our lives. And if we miss the meaning of Christ, we're certainly going to miss the meaning of Christmas. Now, we have five illusions today, uh, things that seem to be true, and they look great from a distance, and they wrap up really nice, but they are actually empty on the inside. And so we're going to open them up one by one, and we're going to start today with our first illusion, okay? So here we go. You guys like this wrapping paper? It's for a boy. (coughs) Good stuff right here. Oh. Here we go. An Amazon box. trick. It's just an illusion. So let's, let's look at what the illusion says. So illusion number one, my stuff defines me. My stuff defines me. The man who came to Jesus felt like his missing inheritance was defining him. He thought he needed more to be more. And unfortunately, that's Uh, the downside of what we sometimes call the American dream. The American dream is this ideal that every citizen should have equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. There's nothing negative about that. It's actually a good thing. Unless we start to think that the stuff we acquire defines who we are. Now, Jesus is going to tell this man a powerful story to illustrate what happens when we fall for this illusion. But I want you to notice again the statement that Jesus makes before he tells the story. In verse number 15, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So for this illusion that my stuff defines me, God gives us the gift of reality. And we put it there in your notes. Beware of your relationship with stuff. Because your life and your stuff are not the same thing. The brand of your shoes doesn't define you. The cost of your dress doesn't define you. In Martin Luther King's famous 1963 speech, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we know that this dream came to be true uh, for his children. And it has come true in a general way today in America when it comes to race and ethnicity. And obviously in our nation there are individuals still who are racist, but systemic racism is basically gone from our society. And we should observe the quality of the character in the people around us. Not the race, not the status, not the social symbols. This is about how we view each other. But Jesus makes it clear that how we view each other doesn't matter much in the end anyway, because your soul will be required of you. And that has nothing to do with how I view you or you view me. That has to do with how God views us. That's all about God's sight. And there is no possession in the world that makes you good in God's sight. In God's sight, you are defined either in the category of sinner separated from God or the category of sinner saved by grace. Those are the only two categories when it comes to how God views humanity. And so that's illusion number one. And we're going to open illusion number two and see what we have next. Hopefully this is box number two. I got really confused and I didn't label them. So if it's not number two, we'll either have to skip to number three, or I can just fake that it's number two, which would be another illusion. So then we'd have six illusions instead of five. That could work. Pretty cool. Oh, it's an Amazon box. Oh, man, that blender's heavy. Good news, it's illusion two. <laughs> Thank you for cheering me all. You guys are great. I'll be here all week, opening empty presents. Illusion number two, this, this is so powerful. Don't miss this one, because this is where most people live. This is illusion number two. When things settle down, I'll get to what I want. When things settle down, I'll get to what I want. Now, there was a cardiologist named Meyer Friedman. And Meyer Friedman was the guy who came up with the term type A personality. And he theorized that type A people, if they don't get help, are chronically impatient and often angry which raises the risk of heart attacks and early death. Now, how many of you, if you were honest, you would say, I know somebody who is a type A personality? You know somebody who's a type A personality? Okay. Now, If I asked how many of you are type A personalities, we probably wouldn't get as many hands raised. But, you know, if people who have type A, if they don't get help, they're in big trouble. And here's what Meyer Friedman said. He said that we as a society suffer from a disease called the hurry sickness. That's what he defined it as. It's actually in in his book, the hurry sickness. We worship speed. Now, have you noticed, as you drive down the the freeway now, that even hospitals brag on billboards that emergency room patients will be seen in so many minutes? Right There's a hospital in Detroit that guarantees if you come into the emergency room, you will be seen in less than 20 minutes. Now their mortality rate's gone up 90%. And <laughs> I don't know if it has, but you'll be seen in less than 20 minutes. Here Take this one out, can't help him anymore. Now, you can order food on your app so that you can pick it up at the fast food restaurant. Right, So you don't even have time to wait in line at the fast food restaurant, so on the way to the fast food restaurant, you put in your app what you want so you can pick it up to make the fast food restaurant faster. That's crazy. We have all sorts of hurry components in our lives that we could probably admit to. In fact, confession is good for the soul. And so we'll do this for a second. I'm going to describe the hurry syndrome to you, and you let me know if you suffer from it, okay? If when you come to an intersection, and there are two lanes there, and there's one car in each lane, if you find yourself guessing based on the make, the model, and year of the car, which one is going to pull away the fastest? Because God forbid you get behind the slower car and lose like five seconds of your precious time. How many? How many? Okay, all right. Now right, here's another one. If, when you're at the grocery store, and there are two lines that you could get into to check out, and you find yourself counting how many people are in each line and how many items they have per cart. And if you've ever counted whether somebody in the 20 or less line actually has 20 or less. (laughs) And now if you're really sick with hurry syndrome, okay, not only do you evaluate the lines in the carts, but when you get in line A, you keep track of the person you would have been behind in line B. And if they get out of the store before you, then you're depressed for the rest of the day. How many of you think you might suffer from the hurry disease? <laughs> wow, this is a sick church. <laughs> so Jesus tells this story about a certain rich man. And what I would like to do is, is I want to kind of retell it in a way that if Jesus were here today, he might tell it about somebody in Caldwell in 2017. Because this story is closer to home than we might think. It's the story of a guy who is quite respectable. He's admired by others. He wants to achieve and to climb the ladder. And so he's doing a lot of things that are probably good things, but they may not be the best things. He's looking for that S word, success. Sometimes even Christian people can be after that word. And we might even look at God as a a means to get us to that word. Like, This guy who told Jesus, hey, help me get more of my money. I have a dispute with my brother. Now, the guy in our story is willing to do whatever it takes to get success. He'll work 12 to 14-hour days. He'll join whatever network or organization necessary to get ahead. He might even attend church just to get leads. Even when he's not at work, his mind is still there. And work isn't just an occupation. It's his preoccupation it's where his heart is it's the object of his devotion even worship but he probably wouldn't say that out loud his wife tries to slow him down to remind him that he has a family and he's vaguely aware that his kids are growing up and he's missing it from time to time his kids complain that he's not reading to them or he's not going to their games or he's not eating meals with them. But after a while, they stop complaining because they stop expecting him to change. And he says to himself in those moments, I'll be more available for my family, more available for what matters most in six months or so when things settle down. And he uses that phrase a lot. When things settle down. Although he's a very bright guy, he never seems to notice that things don't settle down. One night, he's going to bed at one in the morning again, and he feels a sudden sharp pain in his chest. And his wife makes him a doctor appointment, and the doctor tells him he needs to make significant changes. He's got all the classic symptoms of big heart problems, high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, stressful lifestyle. And for a while, he makes some changes. But when his symptoms go away, so does his motivation to change. His motivation to care for his body like he should is gone. And he says to himself, there'll be plenty of time for that in six months or so when things settle down. He recognizes his life is out of balance. His wife sometimes mentions church and God. But Sunday mornings are the only time he can crash from the stressful week before. And so he says to himself, I can believe in God without going to church. And there will be plenty of time for that sort of thing when things settle down. And then a new project comes up at work, and it's the one that will take him where he wants to be. And so he works harder to get success, of course, And he tells his wife, honey, once I get through with this project, we're going to be set for life. That'll be the dream. That's the success, the financial security, everything we've hoped for. And then we can just relax and eat and drink and be merry. His wife's heard it all before, and so she doesn't get her hopes up. And when she goes to bed that night at 11, she says, you're coming up with me? He says, I'll be there in a couple minutes. Just have to crank out a few more emails." I'll be right up." As she goes to sleep and wakes up at 3 in the morning, he's not there. She goes downstairs and sees him in the same chair in front of the computer, resting his head on his arm. She thinks that he's fallen asleep and goes to get him, but when she touches him, his skin is cold. And even though the paramedics come, there's nothing they can do. He's been dead for hours. His death is a major event in the community. His obituary is read by many people and he'd have liked to know what they said about him. The people do say wonderful things at his service. He was successful, top of his field, a leader, a visionary, a pillar in the community. But God has a different description. God calls him fool. Now Jesus isn't just calling names here. He's diagnosing problems. And when things settle down, I'll get around to what really matters, what I really value. Could I just ask you this question, just being real with you? When do things settle down? When you die. You will be amazed at how much things settle down. Way, way down when you die. And for God's gift of reality on Illusion 2, I'm going to give you a powerful quote by Dallas Willard. If you ever want to read some books on Christian growth, Dallas Willard was the guy. Listen to this quote. This is so good. Here it is. Here's tip number two. Hurry is the great enemy of life and our spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate it, From your life. You know, there's a difference between being busy and being hurried. Being busy is an outward condition of having a lot of things to do. Jesus was often busy and he had many demands placed upon him. Being busy is an outward condition that's common to us all. But being hurried is an inward condition of the soul. It's when my mind is preoccupied with self and my agenda and my anxieties to the point I'm unable to simply receive and bask in the love from my Heavenly Father, yet to be fully present to notice and listen to and serve the people that I'm with one at a time. Hurry will kill you. It will wither your soul and shrink your mind and you will never know what happened It is the great enemy of spiritual life. And if you're serious about knowing God and loving God and living for God, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I'll tell you this, no one else can do it for you. There's no doctor who can do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. Yeah, those indicators we talked about earlier, they're part of the hurry syndrome. You guys ready to move to illusion three? All right, here we go, illusion number three, we're going to unpack it, I think it's this one, I think this is the right one, we'll see, okay, here we go, oh, it's an Amazon box, crazy, wonder where my wife shops, a lot easier than the mall. It's another illusion. Illusion number three someday more will be enough. Someday more will be enough. You know, we're constantly bombarded by two major ideas all at the same time, and one idea. One idea is the idea that you shouldn't be content with who you are or where you are because you have to keep growing, you have to keep obtaining. And the other idea is that contentment is just one purchase away. Buy me, try me, drive me, use me, eat this, wear this, put this in your hair, and then you will be content. But here's the problem, and if you don't miss. If you miss everything in the whole message today, don't miss this sentence. This is so good. Here's the problem. Between more and enough is a gap that will never be filled. Between more and enough is a gap that will never be filled. More will never get you to enough. It's never going to get you there. More will never get you to enough. Contentment is not something that happens based upon possessions or circumstances. Contentment is an attitude where I discover the reality that I actually do live in the presence of a God who loves me and watches over me. Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. One old preacher said Paul had never been to Texas. But... I don't know about that. He said, whatever state I am, whatever condition I'm in, whatever circumstance I'm in, I've learned to be content. It's something you have to learn. And only God can lead us to true contentment by giving us the right thinking. Last night we had our staff party. And we had a dress up. A lot of people dressed up like their favorite Christmas movie character. And one couple worked in, uh, walked in And the guy, he's bald, so it worked perfect for him. He dressed up as Charlie Brown, carrying a little tree. And his wife dressed up as Lucy. And it it was a fun event. But you know, there's an old Charlie Brown cartoon. And it's from a year at Thanksgiving. And Charlie and his family are in the house having Thanksgiving dinner. And a turkey and dressing and mashed potatoes and uh, sweet potato casserole, which is my favorite, if you put pecans in it, Um, And Snoopy is sitting on his doghouse with this bitter expression because he's missing out. Until this thought suddenly occurs to him, it could be worse. I could have been born a turkey. (laughs) Now, I believe that phrase, it could be worse, is God's gift of reality for us in Illusion 3. It could be worse. Now, when you leave today and you get in your vehicle and you're tempted to think, you know, I'd be content if I just had a newer or nicer or larger or more expensive vehicle. Instead, say this. It could be worse. Now, what if we just said that together out loud? You ready? It could be worse. Now, that'll help you with your contentment. I mean, it really will. It could be worse. Because... I'm just telling you this, on the very worst day of your life, it could have been worse. How do I know that? Because you're here. Right? On the very worst day of your life, on the very worst hour of your life, it could have been worse. When you get home today, instead of thinking, this house is drafty, if I just had a warmer or a nicer, or a bigger, or a newer, or a more expensive house. Instead, say, "It could be worse." If you're married, tomorrow morning when you roll over and look at your spouse, uh, just kidding. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do that one. No, don't, don't do that one. You know there are two. No There are two kinds of richness. There's the richness of having, and there's the richness of being. And the second one is the one we want. If you're counting on the richness of having to make you happy, you'll never be happy. The richness of being of loving, of living, of serving, of being a child of God is what will lead you to contentment. And it is a learned attitude no matter what state you're in. All right, let's unpack our next illusion. And we're on number four here. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Hard to believe. Who would have this many Amazon boxes? That's the first question. Okay, here we go. Psh. Illusion number four I am in control of my life. I will be, pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, "Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, and drink, and be merry. One of the facets of the hurry disease that I didn't mention earlier is this. We think we've got control of everything. And we think we have to control everything to manage everything. And if you're type A and you want something do, done right, you got to do it yourself. And it's part of the hurry disease. And we think it's possible for us to control our lives. We get into image management and what other people think of us. And we get perfectionistic and we get competitive. And our lives just drift away. And it's hard for us to know how or why it happens. Because control is a powerful Illusion. It is so powerful that the devil has been living underneath it for thousands of years, thinking that he's in control and that he will eventually defeat God. But I read the back of the book, we win. His illusion is going to die and he's going to spend all eternity in the bottomless pit. You know, control is a false reality. Let's see what God's gift of reality is to us for this illusion. Your soul will be required of you. And only a fool would think otherwise. The man in this story was especially at risk for this illusion. I'm in control of my life. I'm smart enough I'm strong enough. I have the credentials. I have the connections. My life is going to go on as long as I want it to. My brain is going to keep thinking at the same level it's always thought. My heart's going to keep beating. I'm still going to be able to run the 40 yard dash in 4.3 seconds. I'm going to keep just piling stuff up. I'm in control. But Jesus said, you're a fool for thinking those things. Now don't you know your very breath, the beating of your heart, your soul, is not yours to control or possess? Everything you have or control is really a gift of God that can be required of you at any moment. And that leads us to the last illusion. Illusion Number five. Yeah, let's see here. You're wrapped so well that they're hard to unwrap. Well, I mean, my wrapping expertise knows no bounds. If you've ever gotten a gift from me, you know that I am one of the best rappers that there is. In fact, they used to call me Vanilla Ice at the rapping place. Okay. Another Amazon box. Let's see here. I finally got something. <laughs> finally got something. That's good stuff. Here's illusion number five. Everything I accumulate. Is mine. When I was a kid, summer of 1979, I was seven years old. And my parents had some friends over, and they played a game called Monopoly. And it took hours. When I was a little kid, I was just sitting there watching, and I saw the fire and the passion and the sorrow involved with the game. And I thought, you know, I really, really want to play that game. And so the next day, I asked my mom if I could play Monopoly. And she told me, I don't think you're quite ready for that game. And so I waited, and I asked again and again and again. And finally, she told me, on the first day of summer, next year, you can play. June 20th, 1980 finally arrived. My parents sat down with me at the kitchen table and they taught me the ways of monopoly. My mother ruthlessly bankrupted me. (laughs) She had boardwalk and park place and I didn't have $2,000 and I was done. I went to bed in tears, defeated by the very game I had wished to play for so long. Well, there's a kid down the street who's a year older than me named Wade Gleason. And all summer, Wade and I played Monopoly almost every day. And we started to learn the tricks of the trade. To be good at Monopoly requires total commitment to acquisition. You have to buy every single piece of property you land on. And then mortgage that to the hilt to buy more accumulating is the way to win. And you know, by the time fall rolled around, I had turned eight years old, and I was ready to play again. So we sat down at the kitchen table, and I acquired some monopolies, and I put houses and hotels on them, and my dad and mom were bleeding cash. They were cashing in houses to pay rentals to me, my eyes were sparked with passion. I looked like a young, a young Donald Trump for a minute. <laughs> Biggest smile ever. I owned Atlantic City. And I watched them as they both gave their last dollars to me in utter defeat. And I was the champion of the world. But then they had one more thing to teach me. It's time to put all the stuff back in the box and brush your teeth and go to bed. (laughs) And what they really meant by that was, you are not nearly as smart or as wonderful as you think you are at this moment. All those houses, all those hotels, all those railroads, all those utilities, all that property, all that money, back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box I wanted to leave the game out on the kitchen table as a permanent memorial <laughs> to my skills I wanted the thing to be bronzed, okay now, can I tell you that's the human condition that was the condition of the man in Jesus' story he learned to play the game and he learned to play it well, and it's not a bad thing to learn to play the game It's not a bad thing to learn to play it well. Some of you here today are the masters of the board in your little own world. You know, the guy forgot one thing that maybe you're forgetting this Christmas. He forgot that the game would end. The game always ends. That is one tiny detail that sealed his fate forever. And this story gets lived out millions of times every day. People get so caught up playing the game that they don't realize it will end. The human race is full of people just like the man from Luke 12. Let me close today with God's gift of reality. And I hope this will be a help to you as you go about your week and your Christmas. Here it is. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. You don't get to keep any of it. And your soul will be required of you. You know, it's tempting, super tempting, to get caught up in this supersized culture all around us. But we have to be careful not to get fooled by the illusions. And we have to live in the reality and remember that at the end of your one and only life, the game is over. And it all goes back in the box, and only what you've done for Christ will last. Now, it could be here, you're here this morning, and one of these illusions describes you. My stuff defines me. When things settle down, I'll get what I want. Someday, more will be enough. I am in control of my life. And the fifth one, everything I accumulate is mine. None of them are true. And you might know that in your head, but your heart hasn't been living that way. You might know what God's truth is about living and giving, but you haven't lived and you haven't given the way He wants you to. Today, I hope it's a wake-up call. I hope it's a reminder. There's nobody in here who wants to have a Luke 12 moment. There's nobody in here who wants to plan and prepare for all these things and then for God to pull the rug out from under you and say, not so fast. Your soul is required of you. I want to ask you today, does your soul belong to Jesus? Have you ever given your life to the baby who came in a manger and died on a cross and rose for your sins, and if it doesn't, that's the place to start. And if supersized Christmas is your problem, that's something to pray about as well. Let's close today in a word of prayer, Father.